My name is Eric Holland, and I'm an alcoholic from San Clemente. And uh, first off, I'd like to thank God for another 24 hours of uh, sobriety. And uh, thank you, Kelly, for asking me to come and speak. And uh, thank you, Cole, for leading the meeting. You did an okay job. It was all right. Okay. And uh, um, I haven't uh, actually spoke from the podium in a while. it's been about like 10 months or something like that uh, um, because I still have an alcoholic mind. Uh, um, even being sober almost eight years, I, uh, you know, I sometimes I think that I, I don't have anything to offer. Some, I stopped sharing at meetings for a long time. I, uh, um, you know, and, and so thank you for asking me to do this. Uh, um, you know, growing up, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, um, I would much rather be watching the Warriors game right now than sitting in this meeting and speaking. But uh, I know this is where I need to be, right? And uh, um, it was uh, me, my mom, and my, it was my mom, my sister, and I, because my mom and dad had gotten divorced and, uh, when I was about three. My dad lived in Santa Cruz, and we were kind of like back and forth. And, uh, um, you know, like at a very early age, about like four or five, I started being molested on those visits to my dad's home, right? And, uh, um, you know, and really, like, I blamed him, like, for introducing that person into my life, and, like, I held on to that resentment for a long time, and and I would drunk call him angrily and, and you know, cuss him out and say, this is your fault, now give me money, you know, like a good alcoholic, <laughs> fix this. And uh, my mom, I, I resented her, too, because, you know, she, uh, um, because we were poor and we lived in a, um, not the nicest neighborhood in San Francisco. And, uh, um, you know, I resented her because, uh, you know, she, I didn't feel like she was doing a good job as a mother. And uh, um, really, I was just acting out because of the things that were happening to me in my life. And, uh, um, you know, my sister, I, I, I resented her because she was the golden child and she was the good one and she was the one that everybody everybody loved and everybody wanted you know respected and 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 I wanted that you know I wanted that and I was really I was just jealous you know and so uh, um, what ends up happening is is that I start acting out and the more I act out my mom starts beating my ass and the more she beats my ass the more I act out and uh, eventually I end up in uh, uh, ward of the state of California, and I'm in group homes and foster homes, and, uh, you know, by the age of 10, I'm living in this group home, and these guys ask me, you know, um, they go, uh, hey, if you steal this bottle of, uh, if you steal a bottle at the at the grocery store when we get home, we'll smoke this joint with you, and I'm like, okay, so I go in there, and I steal the bottle, and, and we go home, and we pass that bottle around, and we get pa- we're passing that joint around, and you know, and, and and the funny thing happens. It's not like I'm like, oh, I'm drunk. This is great. It it's like they're like, good job, good job, Eric. We love you. This is awesome. Thank you for doing what you did for us. You know, and like I instantly equate drinking with that love and respect and acceptance that I want and that I crave. And, uh, like, I literally chased that feeling for the next 24 years of my life. Like, um, you know, 
eventually I, I got placed back with my mother where I wanted to be because I wanted to be with my family even though my family was dysfunctional and even though my mom beat me I still loved her um, she was just sick and I didn't know it at the time um, and uh, you know so we're living up in up in San Francisco and we're living in like a residential hotel in the Tenderloin district and uh, I'm a follower and I, I follow what everybody else in my neighborhood is doing and they're all selling cocaine and this guy gets me to start running crack for him and, and I start running crack and uh, um, shortly uh, fairly, fairly soon I realized that that life is really not for me I'm starting to see things that like maybe don't really vibe with my whole love and respect uh, <laughs> if you've ever been in a bad crack neighborhood you know what I'm talking about uh, um, and uh, you know, and one of my friends invites me to go out with them to, to, to this rave, and it's, it's Halloween, 1991, and, and, and we go out to this rave, and he gives me 20 hits of ecstasy, and I sell these 20 hits of ecstasy. And he's like, if you sell these 20, I'll give you five more for yourself. And I brought in these two girls with me who I would met in high school, and uh, it was our freshman year. And uh, I brought these girls with me, and, and, and I decided, like any good alcoholic, that I was going to give each one of these girls one, and I was going to take two, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing how it was going to affect me. And uh, what happened was uh, um, within like 10 minutes, I was peeking and rolling balls. <laughs> and I'm professing my love to, uh, my, to my friend May, and I'm like, I've been in love with you forever. Mind you, I just met her in the ninth grade, and, and it's only Halloween. Um, <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't, she's not, she's not into it. She's not having it. But our friend Rebecca, she's, she's kind of into it. And she's like, <laughs> so then Rebecca starts dancing with me, and we're like making out, and we're having fun. And then I guess the ecstasy started to hit May. And then May starts dancing with me, and we're making out, and we're having fun. And then, like, the three of us are dancing together, making out, having fun, and, I, and, and I'm having a blast. And then I notice that the two of them are, like, arguing over who gets to dance and make out with me. And I'm like, yes, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm going to go to raves, and I'm going to start this ecstasy empire. And uh, um, I went home, and uh, I told my mom I needed $1,000. I wanted her to cash our Social Security checks, because I collected Social Security, too. And I wanted her to cash her Social Security checks and give me $1,000 so I could buy an ounce of powdered ecstasy. And I was on my way. And I started selling ecstasy for the next 15 years. And uh, I went to, like, different clubs every night in San Francisco. I started working for raves. I started doing all this stuff. And uh, um, I, I, I felt like Bill when, when Bill said he had arrived. And, and, and you know, he was, he was having an exciting talk in jazz places. And there was, you know, people were – and, like, my jazz places and speakeasies were raves and nightclubs in the street in the city of San Francisco, right? And uh, um, I had a lot of fun, and I'm not gonna lie to you. Like I had a lot of fun at first, and, and drugs and alcohol, you know, they did that for me. Like that whole the reason I share about about those girls and that, that ecstasy incident is because it reinforces my idea of that that drugs and alcohol are gonna be, bring me love, money, and respect. It reinforces it reinforces that idea that like I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to be somebody I'm gonna I'm gonna do something with my life and 
you know, I, I decided that maybe I'll, I'll try to start selling cocaine, but I'm not a good co cocaine salesman because I'll buy a quarter ounce or I'll buy a quarter pound of cocaine and cook it, start cooking it up and start smoking it all, right? And uh, then I start to think that maybe it's, you know, things, things start not going my way. And, and I think maybe it's like the drug's fault. So like my, my, my solution to the drugs is to drink. So I start drinking more, and I drink more and more and more and more and more. And, uh, um, and eventually it's like I get to a point where uh, um, I hit this like emotional bottom in sobriety. I mean, in, uh, I hit this emotional bottom, and, uh, and it was like around 2001. And, and, I, and I look at that now, it was, that was my bottom. Like I hit my bottom in 2001. And uh, I stayed in that bottom for the next 10 years, you know. Um, I was in and out of the psych ward. I was in and out of jail. I was in and out of. Uh, um, I was, uh, I was in and out of the ER constantly. Um, like uh, one time, I, uh, one time, usually I would like wake up on the cold jail floor, not knowing how I got how I got there or what happened the night before and uh, like hoping and praying that like I didn't do something serious and most nine times out of ten it was like you know you're you're here for a drink in public or, uh, um, and or I would come to strapped to a table and then having trousers on shot, shot in my ass I'm I'm a crazy uh, I'm the real Dr. Jekyll mixed or Hyde that the book talks about and uh, one time I didn't uh, I didn't come to you strapped to the table. I had gotten an argument with my mom. She had stolen a bunch of weed from me and, and a bunch of drug money, and she called the cops. And the cops show up, and uh, when the cops show up, she's like, he's a drug dealer. And, and, and I'm like, you bitch. And, she like, <laughs> and she's like, and he listens to this rap music. He listens to the, this, this rap group called the RBL Posse. They sing this song, there's a bluebird on my shoulder, can I kill it? And she's like, they're talking about killing cops. And I'm like, you I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe my mom's selling me out like this. And uh, so this cop is like, he's like trying to detain me, and he's like, and I'm and I'm wild now, and he's like beating my ass, and as he's beating my ass, he starts choking me, and and I'm like, mm, and I'm like sticking my 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 neck against him. I'm like, yeah, do it, kill me, you know, like. And so like, instead of taking me to jail once again, they. Uh, they, they took me to the psych ward, and they took me to, uh, at this time I was an adult already, and they took me to San Francisco General. They didn't take me to the little kitty psych ward anymore, and they, and, um, they were checking me in, and, and by this time I had calmed down, and uh, I see them, and they're rolling this girl in, in on a gurney, and they got her strapped down to the gurney, and I, and I see them through the, through the plexiglass door, and like by this time, I've like they've taken all my shoes, they've taken my clothes, they've given me a, a, a um, hospital gown to wear, and uh, my bright idea is like when they open that door, I'm chucking that EMT, and so like as soon as they open that door, I just grab the EMT, I throw her out of the way, and I start running down the hall, and I'm taking off down the hall, and like I run down the hall and and down the stairs and out the front of the hospital. And like for some reason, 
I ran straight instead of running left to the freeway, and like straight is like 24th Street, because uh, which is like the hood in San Francisco. It's in the Mission District, and there's like bars on every corner, and uh, and this was in the early, this was in the 1990s, and there's a bunch of like Latin gangbangers everywhere, and there's like just drug and prostitution tracks going up and down the street, and I'm running down this street in nothing but my uh, um, hospital <laughs> gown with my little white ass hanging out. <laughs> And I'm like, and I'm like, oh, I gotta get to the freeway. So I was like, okay. So I cut left, and I get up to the 281, uh, 101, and 80 interchange, uh, and I jump up onto uh, the Cesar Chavez exit, and I, and, and I get out there, and I stick my thumb out, and I start hitchhiking. <laughs> and luckily for me, these two Mexican dudes pull over, and they pick me up, right? And like they, they're like, hey, I say, what's up with the hospital gown? And I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I just escaped from the psych ward. They're like, cool, you want to smoke a joint? I'm like, sure. They're like, where do you live? I told them where I live, and they took me home, right? And like, I show back up at home, and mom is like, what, what the hell are you doing here? I thought, you, like, I, th I, I thought they took you to jail. And I'm like, nah, I escaped from the psych ward. She's like, huh? I'm like, never mind. So okay, but like, that kind of shit was normal to me, right? That's what I thought was normal. I thought that happened to everybody when they drank, right? I thought that happened to everybody. Yeah, they just—they were just too ashamed to talk about that kind of stuff. And I didn't know that I, I was different from everybody else. You know, I—I um, I knew from a young age that I was an alcoholic. Like my dad asked me when I was 13, he's like, "What's wrong with you?" I told him I was an alcoholic, and he was like, "Shut up! You don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. Like you're way too young to be an alcoholic." But I already knew, and. Uh, um, uh, but like to me it wasn't the drugs and alcohol it was like these situations it was like it was like this happening or that happening and uh, um i never wanted to quit i couldn't i couldn't imagine life without without drinking like i thought it was boring i thought it was it was like it was for the birds like who wants to be sober and in 2008 i was uh, living with my sister and my brother-in-law i was working for my brother-in-law we had st we had started this uh, construction company together and, uh, um, you know, like my sister had a couple of kids and I was a bad example to them. And every time, like, you know, they'd be around me and, and, and I'd be acting out, they'd start crying. And, you know, it came to and, and it came to a point where my sister was like, uh, um, I don't want you around my kids anymore. You know, so uh, she's like, you either need to get help or uh, get out. So my bright idea was to uh, go back to that house to my dad's house up in the Santa Cruz mountains uh, um, to be alone with my bottle. Because uh, even though that was like a, a bad place for me and I had all these bad memories and all this bad stuff happened to me there, like it was better than being, being sober. It was better than, it was better than, uh, better than what I thought. And uh, so I went up there and I, and I was alone and uh, um, that was like the hardest three years of my life. Um, I got sober July 16, 2011. It's the only sobriety date I've ever known. Um, I didn't even mean to get sober. What happened was is, uh, I had $9. I went to the liquor store to buy... Uh, um, I, want, I went to the liquor store. I wanted to buy enough vodka to, to make me pass out, but 
I only had $9, so I was only able to buy a liter, right? And I, well, no, I'm used to drinking like one to two big plastic bottles of vodka on a daily basis. I've been doing this for years. So I, uh, I drink that whole liter and nothing happens. Like I don't get drunk. I don't pass out. And like I call my sister, like I, you know, and my brother, and I, and I, and like one more time, and, and I'm crying, and I just tell them that I just want to die, you know. And, and my brother, he decides to drive from Mendocino down to uh, Santa Cruz, pick me up, and he takes me to my sister's house in San Francisco. And they ask me if I want to go to uh, detox, and they check me into an indigent detox in San Francisco, and. Uh, um, and, and I, I had that drink on July 15th, and, and, and so my birth sobriety dates the next next day that morning in that, uh, in that detox facility. And uh, um, I checked myself out after three days against medical advice. Um, and uh, But that was because I knew I was going to a rehab in, uh, um, in Dana Point, some place I'd never heard of before. I just knew it was in Orange County. And uh, I came here not wanting anything that AA had to offer, not wanting, definitely not wanting a God of my own understanding. Uh, um, I came, I came, I came here resenting God. Like, why did this happen to me? If there was a God, he wouldn't let these, all this bad stuff constantly happen to me. And, uh, I got here and somebody in there, my first, like, couple weeks of sobriety asked me to lead a meeting out in the closing prayer of my choice and I literally mm -hmm. told them fuck no what the fuck has God ever done for me and they uh, laughed just like her <laughs> just like her they all laughed like we're huddled up in this circle and we're and we're all squeezing each other's hands and this this nice lady Penny she she turns would Eric please lead us out in the closing prayer of his choice? And I'm like, fuck no. Like, and she's like, and they're like all looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Something, something about some of those people in that circle, uh, I saw something, you know. And, and I saw that those guys, they had that, like, love and respect and, and, and that acceptance that I wanted, you know, that I was searching for in that bottle. And uh, I ended up asking one of them to be my sponsor. And he was my sponsor for, for the first year of my sobriety, and his name was Aaron Fike. And he was, he took me through the 12 steps, and, and he got me, uh, um, he got me involved in service work. He, uh, you know, um, he really helped me. And, uh, um, you know, I got into, I didn't do a lot of things right that first year. And, I was really miserable a lot, but I was really happy a lot too. You know, uh, I got into a relationship early on, like when I had like six months sober, and that relationship was such a shit show. It, it put me into enough pain that I was actually willing to ask God for help. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody gets in a relationship. I'm not suggesting that you don't. Like, but like, what I'm suggesting is is that you actually do the work in the 12 steps so that you have a freaking solution. So that when shit does hit the fan, you have something to turn to. You can see a light at the end of the, you know, at the end of the tunnel, right? And uh, I started asking God for help, and uh, and I started to see that God was like working in my life, little by little, and uh, I and my life started to get better. And I was about 10 months sober at that time, and uh, um, you know. Uh, 
life started getting really good. I started sponsoring. I, I, I got all the way through the steps. I started sponsoring people really early on, and uh, um, I was taking guys through the steps, and 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 then uh, my alcoholism came back to hit me in the ass because, like I said, I was constantly in and out of the ER, and like I'll go to the ER and. They tell me things like, Eric, if you don't stop drinking, we're going to remove your lower intestine. You know, they tell me that I was going to die, you know, but like I wouldn't stop. And uh, I got real sick and I thought I had the flu. And I went to, uh, um, I had this sponsee who was sleeping on my couch. And and I told him, uh, um, I was like, I need you to take me to the hospital. I think there's something seriously wrong with me. And he takes me to, uh, um, and I asked him to take me to a Lagoon, uh, to a Mission Hospital in Laguna Beach because I'm comfortable there because I, at that point I had been doing a H&I panel there for about a year and a half, right? And I'm scared because I'm scared of what the doctor's going to say to me. And uh, um, I go into the ER and, and they they check me into the ICU the next morning. And uh, they sent a, a liver specialist to come see me. And he tells me that I have a, um, stage four cirrhosis of the liver, that I have a chronic hepatitis C, and that my liver has failed and all my internal organs are shutting down and that I'm dying. And I'm about a month shy of two years of sobriety. Right? And, uh, and at first I'm just like, wow, like, okay. So what are we, what are we gonna do? Like, what do I need to do? And it's like, well, I have I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is, is that this is treatable. The bad news is 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 that you have no health insurance. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> He's like, you need this medication. You need this medication. If you don't get this medication, like you're gonna die. And uh, Medi-Cal won't cover the medication. They'd rather, he told me straight up, they'd just rather let drug addicts and alcoholics die than, than to pay for this medication because it was like about a quarter of a million dollars. So somebody in that hospital found out that I was, uh, um, somebody in that hospital had found out that I was in the, um, that I was in the ICU there and came and saw me. And I told them what was going on. And I guess they went and talked to the hospital. So the hospital comes back. So some somebody from the hospital comes back to my room and, and talks to me. And they, they're like, hey, well, we understand that, you know, like, you know, you're going through this and you need this medication to live. Um, but you don't have time to wait for a, for a, to petition a, a, a one of these uh pharmaceutical companies to get the medicine for free like you need it now and you've been coming here for like the last year and a half and you've been doing this H&I panel up on the fourth floor and you've been helping people so what we want to do is we want to help you so they told me that they were going to give me the medication they're going to give it to my doctor so he could administer it to me and uh, you know uh, um they saved my life. And, uh, you know, like my sponsor at the time, Tom Phelan, he had taught me, you know, uh, um, he's still my sponsor today, actually. Uh, 
he taught me, you know, you read pages 60 to 63 and 86 to 88, and you do all these things. And whenever the shit would hit the fan, I would do all those things. I'd do everything that he suggested, right? Because it always worked. And uh, I got up, and, and I'm reading, I'm reading page 60 to 63 in the in the big book, and it, at the top, in the top of page 63 is the is the third step promises, and it's, it says, having had a new employer, being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. And I read that, and something came over me. And all of a sudden, I felt like everything that was happening was going to be okay. Like it, some people, like they say, when you die, your 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 life flashes in front of your eyes, like before you die. Or and it was like when I read that, my life in sobriety had flashed before my eyes. I saw all the faces of the people that I had talked to in that detox center. I saw all the different guys that I had been sponsoring and everybody that I've been working with and all these different things and people that I've met and the things that I've done. And I continued to read the book. And this book that wasn't making a whole lot of sense to me started to make a whole lot of sense because I had had a spiritual awakening in the hospital, right? Like, I was grateful. I was grateful that... Uh, um, God and Alcoholics Anonymous had saved my life because at this point I didn't want to drink and use anymore and I wanted to live and uh, it gave me a life and uh, um, you know it wasn't easy uh, they put me on interferon if you guys know what that is in ribavirin and uh, the, 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 the top four side effects for this medication was uh depression, hyper-emotional sensitivity, drug and alcoholic relapse, and suicide. <laughs> and I've been a suicidal drug addict and alcoholic my entire life, right? I'm like, how, I'm like reading this and I'm like, how am I going to deal with this? Well, the book told me how to deal with it, right? The book taught me. The literature taught me. Because the literature was my first higher power when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't believe in God. And uh, um, I thought that I was an atheist. But uh, later on in my inventory, I, I, I figured out that I was never an atheist. I was actually uh, an agnostic because my very first resentment that when I wrote that first four step was God. How can I how resent something that I believe doesn't exist? Right? So then I found out what the book taught me what an agnostic was. And I found out what an agnostic was. as somebody who questions the existence of God. And I realized that that's what I had been doing. I was questioning the existence because the outcomes weren't turning out the way that I wanted them to turn out, right? And I learned acceptance. And I learned how to uh, pray. And I learned how to do all these things. And I learned how to use all these tools that were going to help me. And uh, I ended up... Uh, losing my place to live, I ended up losing my job, all the things that I worked so hard for in my sobriety that I was so proud of myself for doing, I lost it all because of my health. And the next six months, I was on uh, interferon and ribavirin, and I was injecting myself uh, once a week. And, uh, um, and the medication made me really sick. 
it made me super depressed. It made my mind race real crazy. But one of the things that I did was is that I, uh, since I had all this free time on my hands, I made myself more available to sponsor more men. And I started taking dudes in groups to do the 12 steps. And like I was asking, ask anybody who wanted to sponsor them, I would, I would sponsor them. And, I, and I'd get them together and we'd do steps one, two, and three together. Then I'd separate them and do, do the remaining to step nine and then come back at the end and maybe we started off with with five or six but there was like two or three who were there at the end and then they bonded and we bonded and uh you know when all that stuff was going on and i was really going through it and and and, and like i wanted to quit because like the the health care system and all this stuff like it was really hard for me to deal with and real hard for me to to face alone uh, um, I would call one of those guys and I'd ask him, what are you doing? And he'd be like, nothing, hanging out, going to the gym, probably like him. And uh, I'd ask him if they wanted to get together and read the book. And we'd get together and we'd read the book and it would take me out of that just for that minute, just for that day so I could make it to the next day. And I'd get up and I'd repeat, and eventually my liver started getting better, and my life started getting better, and and and, and my health started getting better, and I was on a transplant list. I was uh, taking off that transplant list, you know, without receiving a transplant. And I was because uh, um, I treated the, my my I treated my doctor, my liver specialist, like my sponsor, right? And I learned that in AA. And everything he told me, like I treated it like he was my sponsor because I was willing to do everything that my sponsor told me. So I was willing to do everything that he told me. So I got taken off that. My liver started to heal itself, right? Because I no longer can, I know it was no drinking and using drugs. And uh, um, my cirrhosis started getting better. And uh, um, I started working again after about a year. And after the doctor signed me off to go back to work and... Uh, um, you know, uh, life carried on, and I, I started uh, I started experiencing a bunch of the promises. And, and I'll tell you though, like at about five months about five months into that that treatment, I got this phone call, and it was the kid who was sleeping on my couch who took me to the ER, the sponsee. And uh, when we were when I was in the hospital, like he came and visited me every day for like I was there for like 10 days and he came and visited me like every single day and like we'd sit there and we would talk and I get this phone call from him and he's like freaking out and I'm like dude what's wrong and he's like I was at work and I was with John and like John left and 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 we were I was cutting this uh I was cutting this I was cutting this piece of floorboard and 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 I cut my thumb off with the, with the circular saw. I'm like, okay, why are you calling me? <laughs> he's like, he's like, dude, I'm in the back of the ambulance, and they want to give me Dilaudid. And he's a heroin addict, right? And I'm like, dude, take the Dilaudid. Like, you cut your... You cut your thumb off. Get off the phone. What hospital are they taking you to? 
he's he was scared that he was gonna lose his sobriety date. I'm like, you're not gonna lose your sobriety date. I was like, tell me what hospital they're taking you to, and, and, and I'm gonna drive up. I'm gonna drive there right now. And they they took him to a, a, a God, what's the name of the hospital? Anyways, it's up off the five in Anaheim, uh, Ir, uh, Irvine, uh, Irvine, Irvine, Ir, what is it? UCI. There we go. They took him to UCI. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. I drive Uber too. I know that. Like, I, I pick up there all the time. I'm like, why am I having a brain fart on this? Uh, um, uh, so, we get off the phone, and it's weird thing happens is, is this fool starts texting me with his like one good thumb I guess <laughs> and he's texting me but what he's texting me is almost verbatim like every all the little plans and ideas that I told him about when we were sitting in the hospital right and I pointed it out to him and it's like you know I start to set like Suddenly, I realized that God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, that I, I got to see how my experience could benefit others. My feeling of uselessness and self-pity disappeared. I had lost interest in selfish gain, and I gained interest in my fellows. And I went and I visited him in the hospital, and, 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 and when he got out of the hospital, I had already been out of work, and he was out of work, and he was wondering what he was going to do. And I started taking him to all the men's meetings that I was going to throughout the week, and uh, um, during the day, and, and, and we're going to a meeting in the morning, a meeting a meeting in the afternoon, and a meeting at night, you know, and we made it together, you know, and, and I was able to help him, and he was able to help me, right, and, uh, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that, and uh, that experience, um, you know, I started getting my family back, uh, um, you know, I went from being like the black sheep of my family to being like one of the most respected members of my family. You know, uh, um, my grandmother, who never drank or used a drug in a day of her life, loves it when I call her because she can talk to me about God. You know, and uh, um, my 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 little sister, her, uh, you know, her kids. They the only time they cry now when they see me is when I leave, right? Like. My mom that I resented, I, I realize now that, you know, my mom was struggling with mental illness and she was medicating herself with drugs and alcohol and she was a single mom trying to do the best that she could to raise her kids in a real expensive city, you know. My perspective had changed because of the 12 steps, because of the work that I was doing here. Uh, I no longer resented my dad, I, I, you know. It wasn't his fault that that, that guy was doing those things to me. It was It was that guy's fault. You know, it was like, and and I got to make amends, you know, and uh, um, and not only like make amends like to them face to face, but make that living amends and keep it, because I've been able to keep my sobriety since July 16th, 2011, and I've never let it go because somebody told me, you write your name down in the front of this book on that front page, you write your phone number here and your sobriety date there, and don't cross it out, hold on to it for dear life. And I've been holding on to it for dear life ever since, you know. And like I've had, I've, I've I've ended up having a great life because of it. I I got deeply involved in service work in another in another fellowship where they actually made me the chairman of the area. I, I started doing world service work. I started meeting people all over the country and all over the world. And I started to do things that I enjoyed, 
like because I used to enjoy going to those raves. I used to enjoy doing those things. I found I started looking for other ways to be a service. I uh, um, started volunteering for a nonprofit that was started by one of my friends here in this area named Pat O. And uh, um, we what we do is we travel around to different electronic dance music festivals all over the country, and we set up safe and sober environments at the festivals. You know, like, I get to go to these festivals, and my motives are different. It's no longer, like, fuck bitches and get money. It's like... <laughs> it's it's like, save money and stay sober, saving, helping other people, right? Like, so, like, my, my, my motives have completely changed, and I get to go to these things, and I get to have a lot of fun doing it, right? And, like... And I enjoy it, you know, and it's like it's like what I enjoy. And, uh, um, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll close with this like little story about like with the um, with my dad last year. Uh, so my dad had been having a bunch of health issues and, and he had gotten a fatty liver. Right. And he calls me. And he's like and this is like the. Monday before before Labor Day weekend, he calls me. And the weekend before that, I was at EDC Las Vegas with like 130,000 people three days in a row, like 99% of them completely blitzed out of their minds on drugs and alcohol. And I'm sitting there having the time of my life, right? And I'm being a service. We're, we're, we have like three meetings a day, and, I, and I'm with my friends. And my dad calls me, and he's like, you know, the doctor told me I can't drink. And I'm like, yeah, this is probably, probably good advice if you've got a fatty liver. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, so, so well, what do you want to know? And he's like, well, next weekend is uh, the Memorial Day camping trip. And every, every year our family would go to Big Sur and we'd all get together for this big Memorial Day uh, um, camping trip in Big Sur, right? And he's like, I'm scared to go. I, I don't want to go because I, I, I don't know if I'm going to have fun if I can't drink. And I'm afraid that I, I won't be able to not drink, right? And I'm like, Dad, do you realize what I just did this weekend? He's like, no. And I start telling him all about EDC, Las Vegas, and like how it's like the biggest music festival in the United States. And, and I'm telling him all about these experiences, but I'm able to convey to him one important message, right? When my dad needs to hear it the most, when the man that I love and respect needs to hear a message, I'm able to give it to him. And it's that I went there and I had the time of my life. And even though I was surrounded by nothing but drugs and alcohol, not once, not once did I have the thought that drugs and alcohol were going to make this situation any better than it already is. Right, because I was able to be present, and I was able to be there for my friends, and I was able to support them, and they were able to support me, and I was able to enjoy the music, and I was able to have a good time, not rolling around on the floor, covered in God knows what, <laughs> whatever people spill all over the floor at raves, and uh, you know, not coming home with a pocket full of money, you know, come, you know, coming home, coming home with my, with my respect and my dignity, you know, and like all that, all those things that I, that I wanted when I was a kid, that love, 
that acceptance, that respect, right? I was able to find here in AA with the people that I was doing service work with, right? It might not have been necessarily with the family that I wanted from, but it was the family that was given to me. And for that, I'm grateful. Thank you for letting me share.